rightly. And so we've been leaning into many different aspects that Paul writes about of how to see rightly. Uh, Now, in our message today, we're at a real hinge point in the letter where Paul is moving from talking about all that Christ has done, in some ways kind of giving us a set of glasses, to now talking about how we live uh, based on what Christ has done. So putting the glasses on and walking. And so we're going to make that turn today uh, in this message. I'm going to read uh, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 6. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Will you join me in prayer? Uh, Lord, how grateful we are uh, that you have called to us. Uh, Lord, we know that apart from you initiating uh, with with us, Lord, we we would not even know to seek you. And so thank you, Lord, uh, for your constant pursuit of us, even when we've been been running away. So Lord, uh, we come to you this morning uh, grateful uh, for the mercy of Jesus Christ. God, I pray this morning that you would help us to see uh, rightly, help us to see you for who you are um, in your goodness in your sovereignty. God, help us to see us for who we are ourselves. Lord, people in need of mercy, people who are deeply loved. And God, I pray that you'd help us to see uh, our call, how you're calling us to to walk with Jesus together. So Lord, uh, open our eyes, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I got my uh, first pair of glasses uh, when I was in sixth grade. Um, And I gotta say, glasses are way cooler today than they were when I was in sixth grade. Uh, I remember not being thrilled that I had to get glasses. Um, the pair I got, you know, looked like the pair, uh, well, how do I compare them? There were these plastic frames that were um, uh, just not cool in the least. And so when I got these frames, I promptly lost them. I lost them on the recess field uh, for about a month before I found them on the field again. But for a month, I didn't have my glasses that I had just gotten because I wasn't really prone to want to take good care of them. And I gotta say, I'm so thankful that glasses have changed a lot. Um, you know, people are eager to get glasses now because they look so much better. Uh, but I did not take good care of these glasses. Matter of fact, after I got my next pair, I lost that pair too. I went swimming at a friend's house and I dove in with my glasses on, didn't even know it, until my friend called a day later and said, hey, we found your glasses in our, in our pool. So I, I jumped to the pool with them on. I broke most pairs I had in high school. I was not a good caretaker of my glasses. And it's kind of funny, because my glasses really were wonderful. I mean, they enabled me to see clearly. I, I couldn't see well without these glasses, yet I didn't treat them very, very well. Most of the time, I saw them as an inconvenience. And I think we're actually tempted to treat our faith in Jesus in a similar manner. I mean, through faith in Jesus, God gives us the ability to see things clearly. I mean, we can see God for who he really is. We just look at Jesus and we, we see God in flesh. We see uh, the, our maker come to us and the, the goodness of Jesus is overwhelming. If we look at Jesus, we see who God is. And, and as we look uh, through Jesus at the world, we, we see who we are. 
uh, sinful people but in need of mercy. We see how God wants us to live in life. We see the meaning and purpose for which we're made. I mean, we can see clearly when we see through the lens of faith, but an awful uh, lot of the time, that just seems like an inconvenience. Um, it may even seem uncool to look through this lens at life. And so it's easy to neglect this lens and just to kind of continue to squint, looking at life the way that everyone looks at life apart from Christ. Now here in this hinge section of Ephesians, Paul is telling this group of Christians and us today that God didn't give us new sight through faith in Christ so that we could go on squinting. He says I, he wants to give us faith so that we can see, actually put the glasses on and walk well. So in our uh, uh, teaching time today, I want to focus mostly uh, on verse 1, and then we'll see how that ties into the next five verses. But I want to focus on three words in verse 1. So for you note-takers, here's your kind of three words for the morning. Therefore, walk and worthy. All right? Therefore, walk and worthy. Uh, first word here, therefore. Now this is a hinge word. I mentioned earlier this is the hinge verse of the letter of Ephesians, and Paul does this in most of his letters. He starts the first half of a letter to a group of Christians explaining to them the gospel, saying here's what Christ has done. Here's what's happened in our world because of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Therefore, here's how you can live. So verse one, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now in the first half, Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul has said some amazing things uh, that has happened to us and to our world since Jesus has come. He said that Jesus has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Uh, like we couldn't be more blessed, Paul's saying, because of Jesus Christ. He says that we're, we've been adopted into God's family through faith in Jesus. That in Jesus we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus, we've received an eternal inheritance. It doesn't matter how much money you got now, your eternity, you're well off forever. We have this inheritance in Christ. In Jesus, we've been given the Holy Spirit. In Jesus, we've been made alive, raised up, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Jesus is our peace. He has destroyed the wall of hostility that divides people, and he's created a new reconciled humanity. Therefore, in light of all this, realize what has taken place in our world and live in light of it. That's what this therefore means. This word therefore, it implies two things. It implies two things. First, that the good advice of Ephesians 4 through 6, without the good news of Ephesians 1 through 3, is futile. See, Ephesians 1 through 3 is good news. Here's what Jesus has done. It's the gospel. But if we just jump to chapter 4, if Paul had only written a letter that started at chapter 4, we'd have a lot of good advice, but not but having begun with the good news. And there's a reason that Paul always does this. He's not assuming that all the followers of Jesus already are living based on the gospel. He reminds them again and again and again. Here's what Jesus has done. Here's the good news. He never starts his letters just with good advice. See, good advice without good news is futile. We cannot live Ephesians chapter 4 through 6 without Ephesians 1 through 3. We can't. 
all that God is calling us to do has to be motivated by the work of Jesus Christ. Um, trying to do so is the worst of religion. Trying to, to live the right way, but without the power of God, um, really makes at best, it makes us self-righteous Pharisees. And if we get good at doing moral things, we then inevitably look down on others that can't. And so even our, our righteousness, our, our good deeds become filthy. And so we need the good news to humble us and to empower us to live the good advice that the scriptures give us. So first of all, therefore tells us that good advice without good news is futile. But there's another side to this coin. It tells us also that good news without good advice is pointless. Paul doesn't end his letter at chapter three. He doesn't say, well, there's the good news, you know, have a good life. There's an application. There's a way we're called to live based on the good news. Now, a uh, broad brush characterization warning here, okay? Very broad brush. I think that churches tend towards being either Ephesians 1 through 3 or Ephesians 4 through 6 churches. Either churches that are focused on 4 through 6 are constantly saying, here's what you should do, and you, know, you should live in this way, and they're really focused on trying to get people to live a certain way. Or churches are really focused on one through three. Here's what Jesus has done. Know it, know it, know it. So either know or do. And Paul says, therefore, it's both. We have to be churches that are anchored, rooted in the good news of Jesus. But that good news then leads us into a whole new kind of life. There's a point to why Jesus died, why he rose, why he ascended, why he sent his spirit it's not just so that we know those truths, not even just so we have our sins forgiven. He has a point for our life now. So what, what is the point? Well, I think the next word we're, we're gonna consider helps us to understand the reason Jesus did all that. And that's the word walk. Walk. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, if you look up uh, in the uh, biblical dictionary, this word, what you're going to find is that the word walk means to make one's way or to regulate one's life or to conduct oneself. And seven times in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul uses this word. Uh, he used it to describe uh, the Ephesians' life before they came to put their faith in Jesus Christ. He said to them that you used to walk in darkness and disobedience that your life prior to Christ was a life walking, living, moving away from God and his purposes. And then he describes um, uh, the, the, the life that followers of Christ live after putting their faith in Jesus this way, that we walk in love as children of light. I love that contrast, that prior to faith in Jesus, walking in darkness and disobedience, through faith in Jesus, walking in love as children of light. Now, Paul uses this word a lot, uh, not just in Ephesians, but in his other letters too. Uh, let me show you a couple. Uh, first, Romans 6, 4. Paul writes, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Isn't that great? He's saying that Jesus died, and we were joined to him through faith for a reason. 
And the reason is that we could walk in newness of life. There's a new way of living. There's a new life that is possible through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Colossians 2.6 is the verse that Wendy read this morning as the call to worship. Uh, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You've come to know Jesus, so now walk based on this faith. Put the glasses on and and begin to walk. Now walk implies uh, a few things here. First of all, walk implies journey. Right? If you take a walk, you're heading somewhere. You're, you're not just, well, I guess you could be on a treadmill. But if you're outside walking on a path, you're, you're going from one place to another. Walk implies journey. And the Christian life is a life about moving out of the old way of living and moving toward the new way. And it's a process. We're all in process. We're all in journey, uh, becoming the kind of people that God has saved us to be. Walk implies journey. So Christianity is not static. It's dynamic. Uh, It's a way of living based on belief. We're following Jesus who's alive, who's leading, who's guiding. Walk implies a journey. Walk also implies effort. Um, If you go for a walk, your heart rate's going to go up. Maybe not a lot, but some. I mean, it requires effort to go on a walk. Now, this is hard for some people to grasp, Now, we learned in Ephesians chapter 2 that God didn't save us because of the good things we have done. That we aren't saved by our work. We aren't saved by our effort. And so we kind of scratch our heads and say, wait a minute, walk sure sounds like it requires effort. How does this fit in? It's really important to get our minds around this. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. That our walking in Christ Uh, gives us no heavenly merit. You know, we're not somehow becoming more acceptable to God and that God then gives us salvation because we're walking towards Him. You know, God saves us when we're at our worst. He adopts us even when we don't even want to be in His family. He brings us to Himself and then enables us to live this, this life walking with Him. But the Christian life involves work. And if anyone tells you otherwise, they're selling you a bill of goods. Jesus told us that, that to to walk with him was to uh, take his yoke. Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. That there's a way of life God's calling us to that's going to require effort. It is. Anything of value requires effort. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, uh, a famous author, once said, the Christian life has not been tried and found difficult I'm sorry, the Christian life has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. That the Christian life is difficult. It does require us to learn to deny our natural way of wanting to live and to learn to trust in God's goodness and that we're going against our own inclinations, our sinful inclinations, and letting God transform them to walk with Jesus. So walk does imply effort. And it's good to know that the Christian life does involve effort. The third thing that walk implies is it implies experience. Um, If you go for a walk, you're getting to see the sights. Maybe you're smelling the fall leaves. I mean, there's an experience that happens when you're on a walk. I am so thankful that God did not only save us so that we would know doctrinal truths. He He also saved us so we can experience His life. 
that we can know experientially the goodness of God, the love, the joy, the peace that God intends for us, that we're meant to experience God and His life. Um, I really think that one of the most miserable ways to live is to know the truths of Christianity but not experience it. It's like you know, uh, knowing the menu of a phenomenal restaurant but not eating there. You're like, wow, you know, look at all that I could be eating but never tasting. And Jesus invites us to know his love experientially, to know his peace experientially. And it's not that life just becomes one wonderful uh, you know, happy, happy day, but we can know deep down in our being the love and the joy that God intends, that we're meant to be experientially connected with Jesus Christ. We've considered uh, the therefore aspect of this passage. We've considered that it's a call to, to walk with Jesus, but the third word I want us to consider is the word worthy, worthy. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Um, when you hear that word worthy, how does it strike you? What was the first thought or emotion that you sense within yourself as you hear that word worthy? Pay, pay attention to your emotional response. Uh, I find that for many, if not most people, that word worthy produces a measure of guilt or fear. Uh, many of us hear that word through our own lens of experiences. You know, maybe in the past you've had a parent or a coach or a teacher or, or, or a boss who you felt you never measured up for. You weren't good enough. You weren't worthy. That word worthy often sounds to us like a call to measure up and prove ourselves. Remember Ephesians 1 through 3. The whole point is we haven't measured up. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came because we have not walked with him. Jesus loved us at our worst. Jesus died for us to take all our sin upon himself. So this is not a call to somehow measure up now. That we, we need to do what you know, Jesus previously did for us on the cross, but now it's up to us. That's not the point at all. Worthy is not about proving ourselves or trying to measure up to God. Um, listen to this quote from Daryl Johnson in his commentary on Ephesians and how he explains what this means. He says, The word worthy is not about measuring up or achieving some kind of spiritual capacity. The word means bringing up the other beam of the scales balancing into equilibrium. It's about balance or better suitability. Something is worthy because it fits. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling means walk in a way that fits the calling. Walk in equilibrium with, in balance with the call. Worthy is not about measuring up, it's about fitting in. It's about fitting into that for which we have been created and redeemed. We need to hear this again and again, that Paul is instructing us to bring our lives into alignment with the new reality that Jesus has brought about. He says, look at all that Christ has done for us. Ephesians 1 to 3, he's done all of this for us. Now bring your life into alignment with it. Your life fits when you hear this good advice, when you follow the good advice. It fits the good news that I've previously talked about. Um, 
Ephesians 1 through 3 tells us that there's a new reality at work in our, in our universe, that Jesus' kingdom has broken in. Now, it usually seems that to live uh, the Christian life, to live following Jesus, seems at odds with the values of our world. Often, if you're uh, in a school or a workplace or a neighborhood and you're trying to live out uh, the commands of Jesus, you may find yourself at odds or kind of not in alignment with those around you. But what Paul is telling us in Ephesians 1 through 3 is that it's not us, it's not those who follow Jesus Christ who are out of alignment, it's actually this world that we're in. Now this world that we're in is not in alignment with the kingdom of God that is over all. And one day, what will be normative is kingdom values. That Jesus is one day going to return and all things will be brought under his under his leadership. And so to live following Jesus' way of life now may seem at odds with those around us, but it's not at odds with the ultimate reality. So Paul says, bring your life in alignment with the ultimate reality. It's the best investment we could make when we are sure of what's going to happen in the future. Bring your life in alignment now. So that begs the question, what does it look like to bring our lives in alignment? What does it look like to walk worthy of the calling. Now, the rest of the letter of Ephesians is answering that question. You know, Paul goes on and talks about uh, how we bring our sexuality in line uh, with God's kingdom values, our speech, our work, our parenting, our marriage, all these areas of life were to bring in alignment with God's kingdom reality. But the very first thing Paul identifies is fascinating to me, and it's instructive, that what he chooses to identify first means something. And the first thing that Paul focuses on about walking in a manner worthy is about unity. I mean, listen here in verses, uh, the the second half of verse 1 through verse 3. He says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity. Of all things for Paul to focus on first, why unity? Like, like why is it people living together in harmony such a big deal that this is the first thing he mentions? Well, I think it's because it's core to God's heart. And Paul has already instructed us in chapter 1 that God's ultimate plan is to unify everything. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, this is what Paul has previously said that he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Right now, we live in a world that experiences such division, such polarization, there's so much fighting. What Paul is saying is that's not going to be forever. There is a coming day when the time reaches its fulfillment, when God is going to put an end to all division. That Christ is going to unify, he says, all things in heaven and on earth. what What a vision. I mean, God's already begun this work. He has brought together, unified, a holy God and sinful humanity in Jesus Christ. We've been brought together. He has begun to bring together previously separated people, Jews and Gentiles, 
brought together in Christ. And all history is moving toward this fulfillment when all division will end in Jesus Christ, when heaven and earth will be joined. That's how the scriptures end, heaven descending to earth, this final unification of all things in Jesus Christ. So when we live unified now as God's people, it's a foretaste. We're kind of giving an appetizer to the world of what will be the future. God's people living unified. Not because we all think exactly the same on every issue, far from it. But because we have one Lord, one faith, one hope in Jesus Christ. So, how can we walk in unity? Um, You know as well as I do, that's been a real challenge. I mean, it's been a challenge for the church throughout history. If you read any church history, the church has experienced a lot of divisions. And we're no stranger to that. It's been hard in America over the past uh, few years for the church to live unified. So how can we do it? How can we walk in unity? And Paul gives us a couple simple but incredibly powerful instructions in this passage. Uh, First, and these are my words, not his, I think he would tell us to major on the majors together. Major on the majors together. Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, Paul says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, is there more to the Christian life than what Paul mentioned in that list? There definitely is. There's more things to consider about theology. There's more things to consider about discipleship and how we should live as Christians in, a, in, a, in the world that we're in. Lots more things to consider. But Paul lists these things here because they're core. They're central. They're the majors. We have one Savior who's come for us, Jesus Christ. There, there's no other way, apart from Christ, for us to be made right with God. There's one way to be made right through Jesus Christ, and Paul's making this central. But what we're finding is it's really easy to assume the majors and focus on the minors. That's our tendency, is to make the minor issues the major focus. And Paul says, no, 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 no. As followers of Christ, regularly focus on the majors together. We're doing that this morning. We're gathering together, singing core truths about Christ, Him coming for us. We're spending time together in community groups, in prayer, in study of the scriptures, focusing on the majors together. When we focus on the majors together, it gives us something solid then to hang on to when we do have disagreements on the minors. So we as a church need to focus on the majors together, and I'm so glad that we've been doing that over this past year. And I pray by God's grace, we can continue to focus on that, because I'll be honest, it's not the norm right now. It is not the norm to focus on the majors. There was a very uh, intriguing and disturbing survey done recently. I mentioned this last week in our district conference uh, down in Acton, Massachusetts. Um, uh, Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research did a a survey of self-identified evangelicals in America. And they asked them a lot of questions. And um, what they discovered was there's a lot of uh, core beliefs that we are not unified on. And one of the ones I was just shocked on, of, of, of the people surveyed, over 7,000 people, 43% of self-identified evangelicals in America said that Jesus Christ is not Lord. 43% of self-identified evangelicals said that Jesus was not God. 
Now, in that same survey, almost everyone surveyed agreed that abortion was wrong. It had the same view of sexuality being reserved for the covenant of marriage. So what they found was evangelicals were more in line on moral and hot-button cultural issues than they were on the core theology of our faith. Now, we need to be uh, thinking well and biblically about these current hot-button issues, but they aren't the central piece of our faith. Jesus Christ is. And we do live in a day where the majors are not being focused on with the same level of energy as the other important but, less, but minor issues. We need to major on the majors together. Then secondly, if we're gonna walk in unity, we need to bear with one another on the minors. Again, same passage where Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. You know, to live as a Christian requires that we are in relationship with other Christians who think differently on minor issues. We don't have to bear with people with whom we agree. We only have to bear with people whom we disagree, right? I just love how Jesus models this for us with his disciples, who he calls together to be part of his group. You, know, you, have, you have Matthew, the tax collector who worked for Rome. And then you have Simon, or uh, the zealot, uh, Judas the zealot. Simon the zealot, thank you. Simon the zealot, and he puts them together. Now, Matthew essentially is working for the occupying Roman government. The zealots were ready to take up arms to overthrow the Roman government. Those two guys are put into the same group. I'm sure they had some interesting conversations. But in Christ, in Christ, they could be together. We can't bear with one another, though, apart from there being some virtues that we have to, have to live out, which is why Paul says to do this with humility, gentleness, and patience. The only way we can bear together with others with whom we disagree on minor issues is to be able to practice humility, gentleness, and patience. Real quick, uh, I think here's my own description of those three virtues. Humility means I may not be right. Humility is to recognize I don't know everything. I may have a conviction on this issue, and I need to follow my conscience on this issue, but I recognize I'm not God. I might be wrong about this. And that gives us the ability to hear another point of view. Even if we still disagree with it, we aren't thinking that we are the only one who has truth in the world. I may not be right. Gentleness says, even if I'm right, I won't power up. Even if I'm right, I'm not going to then try to dominate the other person with my opinion. I'll be honest, that doesn't come uh, naturally for me. Um, usually, if I think I'm right, and I usually do, but if I think I'm right, then I wanna make sure that rightness is enforced. But the scriptures describe being right and being righteous as not the same thing. We can be right and be unrighteous. See, righteousness is a relational term. It's about how we live with those that we even disagree with. And Jesus was both right and righteous. I mean, there's nothing that Jesus was wrong about, but we see how he is able to live with people. He speaks the truth in love, but he's able to stay in relationship, even with those with whom he disagrees. So gentleness is saying, okay, I think I'm right about this, 
but I'm not going to power up and try to push my agenda. And this is so countercultural right now. If we as the church would practice this, we would stick out like a sore thumb. I mean, every uh, talk show, even Christian talk shows right now, uh, find this virtue to be very inconvenient. It's about arguing the rightness of my point and belittling the other. And that's not gentleness. That's not gentleness. Gentleness is to not try to make the other person look stupid with the rightness of our own opinion. We need humility. We need gentleness. And then lastly, patience. Patience is to say, I'll trust God and play the long game. I don't know how this is going to work itself out, but I'm going to wait and see what God does. To my great annoyance, my wife is very good at practicing this. And I've, she let me in after a number of years to a little trick that she's done, and that is when she disagrees with me, um, instead of trying to like uh, change my mind in the moment, because I tend not to respond real well, because I lack gentleness, uh, she prays that I will change my mind. And I found out all the time it works. <laughs> it's a willingness to play the long game, to say, let's see how God works uh, in his life over this process. So I've started to do that myself with other people and with her. Um, <laughs> I find it's helpful practicing this prayerful, patient style. Humility, gentleness, and patience are necessary virtues if we're going to bear with those with whom we disagree. And guess what? They're all fruit of the Spirit. If you look at Galatians chapter 5, Paul describes a list of bad behaviors we call the works of the flesh. Then he describes a list of virtues, the fruit of the Spirit. And it's very instructive to compare those two lists. The works of the flesh are bad behaviors that we do. The fruits of the Spirit are virtues that God creates. A tree doesn't just do the producing of fruit. Fruit is produced through the tree. And in a similar manner, we can't just do these virtues. We have to become the kind of people who naturally these virtues flow out of. So even in this text today, um, <laughs> I, I read it in a couple of different translations. And the ESV nails it, and there's different styles of translation. The ESV is a word-for-word -word translation, where like the NIV and the NLT are a thought-for-thought. -thought. And the ESV says that we should um, bear with one another, or it says first, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. It's a passive reading. It's not saying, be humble, be gentle, be patient. It's saying these things have to be coming from you with humility, with gentleness, with patience. We need the Spirit to produce these fruits in us. And the way that God does that is we believe the truth of Ephesians 1 through 3. We believe that Jesus has come, He has died, He has risen, He has ascended, He has given us His Spirit. We don't drift from knowing who Jesus is and what He has done. And then we begin to practice in small ways living these virtues in the areas based on God's grace where we can actually manage it. Um, I've found I've had to practice in small ways these virtues like gentleness and patience during the times when I actually can do it. Because in the big moments, I might have not the capacity to respond with gentleness and patience. So this past week, uh, I lost my wallet. And when that happens, I am embarrassed to say, and by, now, that, now that I'm hired, I can admit all my faults to you, all right? Um, I found uh, that I tend, in those moments, to freak out. Because I don't like losing things. It's an inconvenience, an annoyance. And it's, it's just so stupid. But I lost my wallet. And I think, oh, this is going to be a major inconvenience. I'm going to spend time looking for this. 
And I just had this prompting from God, this is an opportunity to develop patience. And so in that moment, since it wasn't a massive deal, I could stop, pray, and that moment became sanctified. No longer was it just about me trying to find my wallet. It's about character being developed because I need the Spirit to make me a patient person. So in a bigger moment, when it comes to disagreeing with someone you know, over a major issue, I could actually respond with patience because I'm not going to have it in that bigger moment if I don't practice it in the smaller moments. So God wants us this week to be able to walk with Him in the smaller moments, putting into practice in little ways in our life, humility, gentleness, and patience, and He develops within us that kind of character. So in the bigger moments, we just naturally respond that way. We've become the kind of person who is humble, gentle, and patient. Friends, Jesus has come. He has died for our sin. He has risen to make us alive. He has ascended to heaven, and he is now ruling in the place of honor at God's right hand. He has sent his spirit to us, and he will return one day to unite all things in heaven and on earth. He's brought about this new glorious reality. Therefore, I urge you this week to put on the glasses of faith and to walk in unity, bearing with one another with all humility, gentleness, and patience. You'll find that this way of life fits perfectly with the eternal kingdom of God. Will you join me in prayer?